Good morning. Jeff Stevens here. Playing some set for the fall this morning again. Love these guys. Go ahead and look those guys up. Uh, they got a bunch of videos on YouTube. You can look them up on most of your um, Spotify, all the other Apple players and stuff that's out there. Great band. Bunch of believers trying to nug out the uh, effects of this pandemic just like the rest of us. So go support those guys. Um, coming to you this morning uh, um, with a message that is directly related to a question that I received through um, the website for the nonprofit that I do, um, which is Nation of the Cross Ministries, essentially set up to um, serve our warriors um, set it up a few years ago as a true nonprofit, just a way um, to have access to social media and to, uh, you know, as many places as we can just to get the word uh, of the hope of Christ out to people. Um, and I've been fortunate that um, I've been able to touch quite a few people that I've worked with in the past, people that I work with currently. Um, uh, their wives, uh, just all kinds of folks. And it's just been a blessing that I've had the, uh, the opportunity to have that reach. It's been kind of interesting. <clears throat> it's not huge. It's still pretty small. And the intent is not to grow something. It is really just to reach people who are in need. Um, but I did get a message most recently um, that was... Uh, a response to something that I had said in a previous message. <clears throat> and it caused me to have to do some thinking because when I said this, I said it um, and it probably needed some context and it needed some explanation. This is going to give me the opportunity to do just that. So what I had brought up was that I used to be a Catholic, a Roman Catholic. I was brought up Roman Catholic and I am not a Roman Catholic anymore. I am not a non-practicing Catholic. Uh, I don't think that makes sense. I am not a Roman Catholic. I do not prescribe to that faith. And so I got reached out to, um, and I won't tell the whole story, but in a nutshell, it's like, why? So why are you a non-practicing Catholic? And are Catholics, you know, are they part of the Christian faith? And if so, then why leave that faith, that religion, uh, you know, that dogma and move on to something else. And there's kind of a bunch of parts to the story for me. And part of it is that I was not saved. I grew up in the church and I wasn't saved until my twenties when my wife and I were saved together and we were saved in a non-denominational church, uh, not by our choice, uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit, um, we, you know, were saved in the midst of a very sinful, uh, you know, very reckless marriage and lifestyle that was just going nowhere. Uh, and, um, you know, the Holy Spirit touched both of us and we were, was able to pull us out of that. Uh, and why we weren't saved in a Catholic church, I don't know why. Um, we didn't go there. We weren't going there. We were kind of just going to a non-denominational church because we felt like, um, you know, good American families get up on Sunday morning and take their kids to church, dump them off at youth group, go sit in there for an hour and a half, and then go to the buffet together afterwards, right? That's the kind of the American way. And uh, that's exactly what we were doing. We were faithful to the American lifestyle. And at some point in the midst of it, we were um, saved and are very thankful to God for uh, his work in our lives. Um, and then why didn't I go back to the Catholic faith had I been brought up in it? So um, my um, family on my mom's side were all Catholics, and I was brought up as a child, baptized in the church as an infant, went through the sacramental system up until... Uh, confirmation in the church, which is kind of a uh, a coming of age type ceremony about 13 years old for the dudes. And uh, I did not participate in it, which made some people unhappy. But I, I felt no tie to the church. I felt no reason to 
move on with any sort of sacraments because I, I mean, I was not saved. I did not have any tie to the church. Church was just something you did. It's the place where people got married. It's the place where the funerals took place. And it had some old dude that stood up at the front in a funny dress and a funny hat and droned on about subjects and played music that I was totally not interested in. I went on, uh, I did four years of Catholic high school, which was uh, uh, a great education. And I actually had, uh, at one point, a phenomenal religious studies teacher there uh, however, still unsaved, living a very reckless lifestyle. Uh, I was never really taught in my whole four years of Catholic high school that the center of the Christian faith was Jesus Christ and that there was an expectation to give my life to him. There was no um, real depiction of that throughout that whole... I mean, four solid years I sat in that school and at no point did any of my leadership, male or female, in that school. None of my teachers, principals, religious studies people, counselors ever sit me down and just say, hey man, do you really believe Jesus is who he said he is? That he did what he said he did and that he's got a plan for your life? Never. And I, and I think the assumption was, well, you go to Catholic high school, you're a Catholic, you're a practicing Catholic. Therefore, by default, because of the power of the Catholic Church, you'll end up in heaven. And I, I was really put off by this. It was, it was very disingenuous. Now, I'm not saying they're all like that. I'm just saying where I was, that's how I felt. Um, as I w- was saved uh, years later, um, and the Holy Spirit really started to work in my life and in the life of my wife and my children, I felt this real burning desire to uh, begin a religious studies degree. And I looked to a lot of places, uh, and I settled with Liberty University. Um, was, they're not the most conservative university out there as far as doing theological studies. Some of the guys, you know, from Biola or Dallas uh, Theological Seminary or Southern would probably uh, kind of turn their head and snicker at me. But here's the deal. I was active duty military at the time, deploying a lot and Liberty University had a great program that worked with military people uh, to help with the tuition, with the tuition rate. And, you know, to be honest with you, I had times where I was downrange working and would go on mission and would email or message professors and say, hey, I'm deployed. I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks or a couple of days or whatever that might be. And... Uh, I know I have something coming up. I may miss the deadline. And 100% of the time, what I got was a message back, usually when I returned, that said, don't worry about it, get it in when you can, which was phenomenal to me because it just showed their support uh, you know, of what we do as uh, military folks. And they understood that my desire was to continue to study, but that I had extreme limitations going on in my real life, you know, outside of school. Um, that being said, at some point I looked at like, what is, so I'm doing essentially it's seminary, right? So I did a, an undergrad in religion and biblical studies and I did a graduate degree. I did a master's in theology with a focus in biblical studies. So, you know, I did, uh, over, I think, it is somewhere around 150 to 160 hours of work anyway. It matters not. It was a lot. It's a lot of work. Um, you just compare it to um, what it looks like, you know, for a, a Catholic who, a priest who would go to seminary and have their own seminaries, and there's a number of them out there. But, you know, I pulled one up recently. You look at, like, Thomas Aquinas Seminary, 132 hours of seminary curriculum. And uh, they do about eight hours of biblical scripture, and most of the rest of their degree is Latin, Roman Catholic history. They study the mass. They study Spanish. They do other church-specific topics. And it's really based in the magisterium, right? It's based in what the church believes is its own authority. So you learn a lot about the church and its authority over uh, what people believe, what they learn, what they study. To give you an idea of what you can get at a, you know, a traditional theological seminary, 
um, and I think this is important. I'm not saying this to, it's not a bragging point. It's a point because when you're a believer and you believe that the word of God is just that, the word of God, uh, what you learn from your pastor, preacher, uh, teacher, priest, whatever that might be, should come from a place where they have studied the text in a way and enough of it that they're able to deliver the truth. And this is what my degree program kind of looked like was, you know, 120 hour undergrad, which has all your general electives and stuff, but 21 hours of biblical study, 18 hours of theology, all based in biblical studies, seven Bible electives, and then about 46 hours of information straight from the Bible with a graduate degree of 30 hours of biblical topics to include some Greek and Hebrew and doing uh, exegetical studies, exegesis, or studying topics in... Their original languages, uh, I did not learn Greek and Hebrew uh, and how to read and write it. That's, that's, a, 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 that's a Hail Mary goal. It's something I will uh, come up with at some point. Uh, funny, I, I didn't mean Hail Mary tongue-in-cheek, but like the football pass. Um, it is something I would like to do in the future, but it does definitely take time. Uh, professional students are usually better at learning those. They take an awful lot of time. But uh, it kind of gives you an idea when you look at it, when you're going to sit somewhere when somebody is uh, sitting over you in a way that they are teaching you what comes from the Word of God. I think it's important not that somebody even needs a degree to teach the Bible, but they need to be well studied. They need to be well versed. They should have a um, a good understanding of what's going on. And if it's just church history and if it's just church authority and it's not what comes out of the word of God, what the Bible says about fill in the blank, fill in the topic, then there should be some question about, am I getting what God wants for me? Um, but I, what I really want to do is touch on some very specific points about why I, at some point, as I became a believer and walked on, moved further away from the Roman Catholic faith based on things that I learned, things that I studied, and things that I started to realize I did not think were consistent with the Christian faith that the Roman Catholics practice. And I'm not going to go into deep, dark corners. Some of these are um, well argued and Catholics have great answers for, although they are just incorrect. Uh, and the first one would be the veneration of Mary. Now, if you, uh, say to a Roman Catholic today, you worship Mary, they'll say, no, we don't. We just hold her high. We, you know, put her in a, she is the mother of God. We, you know, she was, Jesus came out of her and, uh, great that, Great, that's true, but you pray to her regularly and there's no cause for, there's no call for, and there's no sign in the Bible, there's no word in the Bible that tells us ever to uh, to pray to her or hold her in a position where uh, we put her between us and Jesus or us and God. There just is not one. She was a human being. So veneration of Mary is historical in the Catholic Church. And this is something I think the Catholic Church has kind of changed a little bit over time because people who are believers get much more well-versed in what the Bible says and it causes the church to have to readjust its stance. So the first real liturgical reference to Mary uh, was used in Bishop Ornations uh, by uh, Hippolytus of Rome, who was um, you know, the Bishop of Rome in the third century. And so we got you know, a couple centuries away from uh, the walk with Christ where now we are seeing uh, a church leader of the Catholic Church try to make Mary more important than she was. Um, Anytime something gets further and further away from the point of origin, we, we have to start to question why. By the 4th century, the Catholic Church is practicing a feast of Mary. And she wasn't called the mother of God until the 5th century, until like 431. And then it takes all the way up to the 2nd uh, Vatican before they start calling her the mother of the church. 
And one of the things I never really understood, and this is even when I was a Catholic, was the statues. I mean, people putting tattoos of Mary on their body, uh, statues of Mary everywhere that people will hang things on. They'll light candles in front of, they'll kiss her feet. Uh, there's murals painted of her. And it's like, these are all man-made things. And people will say these are uh, memorializing her, but they, they kneel at them and worship them like it has some sort of power. It just does not. It's a horrible, horrible practice. And it's likened to the golden calf that is built on the Exodus, um, you know, where Moses has gone up on the hill to receive the Ten Commandments and the Jews all take their gold and melt it down and build a calf. And Moses gets back, he smashes the Ten Commandments. He's so mad. He said, what are you doing? Why are you building something to worship? We have God. You don't need to make something out of your gold. Um, Speaking of the Exodus, in Exodus 20, the third commandment is not to worship graven images. So why are we doing these things? And that was always a question for me as a kid. It just didn't make sense. The statue has absolutely no power. You know, just like the uh, the horror movie where holding up a crucifix has some sort of power, holding up a cross has some sort of power. It's, it it just makes no sense. It's not uh, it's not biblical. It doesn't prove anything or show anything. There's no magic in it. Um, the Bible is clear that she's favored. You know, Luke one twenty eight. Uh, is clear that she is favored. Luke one forty two is very clear that she's blessed among women, but not that she's somehow completely sinless or incarnate, uh, as the church supposes. The Roman Catholic Church believes she was born sinless. That's inconsistent with the um, teaching of original sin, where we have we are born as believers, sinful. Um, um, I know that teaching comes out of how could Christ come to us if she had sin, um, but Christ was, you know, put in her by the Holy Spirit. He is God. He's kind of got some special privileges, so we have to look beyond our own understanding that Christ was able to be born sinless without Mary somehow having some sort of magical sinlessness to her when she was born to two human beings who, because of Adam and Eve, bear sin, right? Um, to kind of move on a little bit, you know, there's always in that Roman uh, uh, church, which has the East and the West built right into it that eventually break in the schism in the 800s, there was always a struggle there. And the struggle there started in the third century and up through the fourth, even you know, as Constantine uh, takes everything over and unites them. But that struggle between the Eastern and Western churches, um, there's no absolute claim as Peter being the first pope. And there's no definitive line drawn between Peter being the first bishop and then a line of bishops afterwards. Now, the church has tried to do this on a couple of occasions. There's a couple of lists out there. You can Google it on your own where they kind of list guys out. But the East and West churches argued about this right from the get-go. I mean, the original guys that were there were telling each other, no, that's, it's not the way it worked. Um, as a matter of fact, there's no real biblical evidence for Peter starting a large church there. No remnant of Paul, who you know was in prison in the city uh, for years prior to his death, it just makes no sense, you know. And this also lends to um, Constantine. We'll talk about him in a second. But it wasn't really until Leo, Pope Leo, in the fifth century, that decides for the church that the line comes straight from Peter, right? And Leo's also the guy who calls himself Leo the Great. Leo the Great, right? So that's a, for a humble servant of the Lord, calling yourself the Great is a great, is a perfect position to put yourself in, you know, for Jesus Christ who came and said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And then for a man who's the Pope to say, I'm the Great seems right in line with the biblical text. Um, Oddly enough, Constantine also called himself the great. So Constantine, whose mother was a Christian, Constantine was not, horrible human being, murdered his wife, murdered his child, is running through the land, destroying everything. You know, he's, uh, he's the leader of the, the Eastern 
the western portion of the um, Roman Empire. You know, he conquers the world essentially at the time. Uh, anything that's within his reach and the reach of his army decides at some point that he is going to be a Christian. There's a lot of good stuff on Constantine out there and why he decided Christianity uh, was going to be um, the religion of the land, but he makes it legal first in the Edict of Milan. Um, and again, there's plenty to read out there about the Edict of Milan. But Constantine was a pretty horrible guy. Now, I don't know his heart, obviously, neither do you. He very well may have converted, but uh, you know he wasn't baptized till his death um, because he had some sort of sin hanging upon him. He couldn't bring himself to do it. That's the kind of the theory. Um, but one of the big problems here was Constantine absolutely did, without a shadow of a doubt, leverage the idea that where the church is tied to salvation, when you tie the church to the state, the state now somehow becomes tied to your salvation so the state could leverage your salvation through the church. So, you know, go conquer other people of other religions because when Constantine was brought up a pagan and there were lots of pagans remember they were Roman they worshiped Roman gods and they um, basically say um, you know if you don't worship what we worship and follow what we're putting out to you from the state then you're going against the church which means you have no salvation it was brilliant it was a brilliant thing for him to do you know the when he is converted he builds the triumphal arch in rome and the symbol is devoted to the unconquered son <laughs> not to christianity like hey i got converted today let's build something to the sun god that doesn't make any sense but it's this huge arch so people going into the city of rome get to see this big arch to some other god but um, anyhow, the just the whole history of the beginning of how Rome has control over the church, and then that church maintains such control as a church over people's salvation, uh, is not something I believe is consistent with biblical text. To include the continuation of the leadership of the church after Rome as a powerful empire goes away, we continue to see popes who are called the vicar of Christ or the indwelling of Christ. They have some sort of spiritual indwelling of Christ that gives them power over the church and gives them authority, which, by the way, inconsistent with the Bible, we are all indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We all have the power of God inside of us. The uh, kingdom of heaven lives inside of us because we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we are saved. So <laughs> we all have that power, that power to preach, teach the gospel, share the hope of Jesus Christ that's within us. It does not take somebody special. It does not take a degree. It does not take some sort of uh, special seminary program or years of study. It really just takes people who are saved sharing with people who are unsaved and then learning together. You know, uh, between 492 and 496, we have Pope uh, Galatius who comes up with this thing, the theory of two swords. Essentially, he's giving himself authority that has never been had before. It is this idea that he is the vicar that he has a spiritual power and a church authority that is unmatched by any other there. And what it does is it sets aside all the other bishops so that when that person is put in the Pope position, nobody else can argue with them. It also means now the state in some way bows down to the church, which gives the church more power, which we're going to see over the centuries that church leverages that quite well and becomes very rich. Um, this is the whole idea of the theocracy, right? It's why we don't want the church and the state to uh, join up together because when you have a bad leader, either from the church or the state, they leverage your um, salvation. So, um, 
You know, the word Pope really comes, it's a Latin word, it comes from Papa, which is father. This is something I've brought up on a number of occasions as well uh, with fellow Catholics of why do you call them father? And there's a lot of uh, excuses on there. I just yesterday went to the uh, one of the Catholic study websites, and it's something they apparently answer 100,000 times a day. Uh, and they've come up with a good answer that, you know, we're not calling them father as some sort of veneration like it's uh, they hold a special position. I mean, you call your dad your father. You call the church fathers your church fathers. But, you know, we're just calling them father as some sort of uh, respect thing. But the, people bow down to the Pope and kiss his ring. And they call him father. And they call him the vicar. And they put him in a position where he's got authority over them from... Uh, from God, not just authority like, you know, I sit in your church and you are my spiritual authority and you are, you know, the most learned one on the Bible in the room. It is authority that goes well beyond any other man should have. Matthew 23, 9 is clear, clear, clear. Call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. They completely set that aside and explain away other uses of the word father in the Bible. Jesus was clear, we have one Father who is able to deliver us from evil, forgive sin, rescue us from death. No man can complete those tasks. Therefore, a priest or a pope is in no way a spiritual father or have the title Father, especially in light of the church's stance of the pope being the vicar. It's just that simple. Uh, that is my stance. It's the stance of most reformers. I think. Uh, I think that there should be uh, more study on it from the position of Catholics to look at that um, because they use it regularly. Prayer to uh, Mary and saints. So there is some sort of idea that um, praying to Mary or pray, praying to saints um, can somehow bring your prayer to God. Uh, you ask them to pray for you uh, as some sort of intercession. Uh, intercessory prayer here on earth, I think we pray for one another. We often pray with one another. We ask people to pray for us. But praying to someone who is dead and in heaven uh, makes no sense. Uh, first of all, uh, we're, we're all saints. Um, um, you know, Romans, Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Jude, and Ephesians uh, are clear all by Paul, that uh, all believers are saints and the church doesn't get to decide who is. They don't have some sort of special power. So to pray to specific saints for specific things just makes no sense. Ask a believer to pray for you in intercessory prayer, but asking a dead person that the church has decided to hold some sort of special position makes no sense at all. Um, 1 Timothy 2.5 is very clear, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's the only one that we really need to pray to. Um, don't need to stick anybody else in there. Uh, you know, Christ's words in John 14.16 are this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we are trying to use somebody else to get to the Father... For instance, I am confessing to a man that I call father my sin instead of getting on my knees and confessing to Christ. That I am paying a penance through prayer or a penance through a church, through my time, my works, uh, whatever. I am not going to Christ. See, Christ is the only way to the Father. Um, when I think that somehow there is a person that stands between me and Jesus, I have forgotten that Christ is the only way. And I minimize his redemptive power every time I set that aside. And to say that you're not minimizing that power is an absolute uh, heresy. So I, I just, I will not do it. Uh, repetitive prayer, the rosary beads. Um, Matthew 6, 7 is clear. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, again, this has been explained away by the church. It's, they don't think they do it. But really, rosary beads were a pagan thing that came as rituals and were adopted by the church. 
Uh, you know, it wasn't up until 1090 that Peter the Hermit used uh, rosary beads. The Hail Mary didn't start till around 1050, which is a large portion of the rosary. And then uh, by 1208, St. Dominic has re revealed somehow the rosary bead structure, and that's where its use begins in the church. So we have, you know, 1200 years of Christian faith happening, unfolding, and all of a sudden, this uh, rosary becomes such a humongous, important part of the Roman Catholic faith where they feel like owning one, having one blessed, dipping it in holy water, blessed by a pope, blessed by a priest, a bishop, you know, hung in a specific place that it has some sort of power, magical power that by holding on to those beads and saying a prayer, it creates some sort of special incarnation or special magic. It's just not true. It's, it is absolutely not part of the biblical tradition, um, which is why it just should be set aside. Um, so we talked about worship of statues and feet being kissed and rings being kissed and stuff like that. And I just want to make sure that we understand that there is no part of the biblical tradition that this touches upon anywhere. This is all man-made stuff. And if you think about, go back to Rome... This is the way we would have treated Roman leadership is by uh, holding them in some sort of position where I bow down before them. You know, I do not bow down before men. It's not what I do. It's not part of my faith. I bow down before God. And I'll talk about purgatory just for a second. I think purgatory is a pretty important subject because this idea that Purgatory is even biblical, number one, is incorrect. So um, there are some theories that the idea of purgatory is really born out of the um, books that the Catholic Church uh, keeps in the Old Testament. You know, we have the... Um, gap in books that reformers don't necessarily uh, use. And it, and that's okay. I don't think those books are necessarily bad. Um, but there are, there's a part of it uh, where people have tried to leverage the text to create purgatory as an actual place. It's not really in there. Um, and this is the problem I have with purgatory. So Christ was clear when he died on the cross that it's finished. When Christ died for our sin, he completed the work. So this is the thing that's important about Christ's death on the cross is he atoned for there your sin. Okay, so the atonement is the payment. It's like I, I paid for your sin right there. I paid for it. So it doesn't need to be paid for again. So he becomes the propitiation or he is the transactional flesh. He paid for it with himself. Therefore, it is paid. So to think that there is sin that is unfinished in you, that after you die, you go to a place where you are going to pay for it more or again, or that there's some more payment that needs to happen does not lend towards Christ's grace. It actually lends to Christ's work not being good enough on the cross. So think of it this way. Christ died for your sin, but your sin was so much that Christ's death didn't pay for it. He didn't pay enough. Therefore, there's more payment that needs to happen. That is a horribly backward um, type of thought process. And really, it, Council of Trent really bears this thing out. And uh, what it comes from is almsgiving. So the Catholic Church was really big on almsgiving. And of course, they still are. And churches should be given your money, should be part of your gift. But what they were doing was when you were sinful, you needed to pay the church. And if you could not pay enough, then you would have to pay for your sin in purgatory. Um, if you could not pay for it with your time, your talents, your works, or your money, 
you would have to go pay for it later. Well, that sounds horrible. When I die, I want to go be in the presence with Jesus Christ, like he said on the cross to the thief. You know, today you will be with me in Paradiso, in the garden. That's where I want to be. I want to go be present with the Lord when I die. Not in purgatory. So out of fear of having to go to purgatory, because, you know, uh, a good priest wouldn't tell you, well, you're a believer, you're going to go to hell. But what he would leverage is, you're a believer, but you're still sinful, so you're going to have to go pay for your sin some more. So that is not consistent with the biblical text at all. Um, and I do not even believe it's consistent um, with the extra biblical texts that are utilized um, in the Catholic Bible. Just, it's just not supported at all in any way, shape, or form. So study that one on your own. Um, one of the last ones I'll hit on is transubstantiation. So, you know, there's a, there's a number of kind of views of the way, uh, the Eucharist is celebrated in churches and there's kind of five mainstream views. Um, and there's been debate over this between different churches for years, um, you know, the Eucharist is uh, really a term that means to be mindful or grateful or thankful, uh, accepting. It's to celebrate the Eucharist is a thanksgiving. It's a celebration. So when Christ says, do this in memory of me, when he breaks the bread and, uh, and says, this is, it represents my broken body. And he says, take the wine. It represents my blood. Um, it is a Thanksgiving meal. It is a time to thank God for the things that he did for us. Now, what Roman Catholics believe is in a thing that theologically is called transubstantiation or that, and this comes from the Council of Trent as well. So we're talking the 1550s probably, 1540s, 1550s, where, you know, 1500 years of church has gone by and now they decide it's going to be transubstantiation. Now, mind you, there were some early people who called uh, Christians um, uh, cannibals because they believed that they were eating flesh and blood because of this, but it wasn't decided upon as a actual uh, thing in the church considered transubstantiation until the 1500s. But it really means that the the bread becomes the body of Christ and the blood becomes the blood of Christ. So, which is kind of weird because Jesus was fully man. So if you believe in the hypostatic union, which is theologically well supported within the Bible, which is Christ is fully man and fully God. Christ is fully sitting at the table with all of these people in the last supper. And he makes the bread become his blood and he makes, or the bread becomes body and the wine become his blood, but he's still sitting there with them. It just doesn't make, if he's fully man, then he does not exist. You know, it doesn't turn into meat and it doesn't turn into blood. It does not. It is still uh, a bread. It is still wine. It doesn't taste like meat. It doesn't taste like blood. It is not. It is not changed substance. So what they will call transubstantiation means the presence is the real presence of. Now, there's a couple other thoughts on it. I'll just throw them out there just for conversation. But uh, the Orthodox Church really, um, as a sacrament or a mystery, would call it the divine liturgy. Or really what is... Uh, the presence of Jesus Christ is there. The presence of the Holy Spirit is there when you practice uh, eating it, but it, he does not become the actual elements. Luther, oddly enough, who, you know, was a Catholic and, of course, who we, you know, call the great reformer, but in Lutheranism, who he would have practiced uh, uh, transubstantiation, um, what his practice was called was consubstantiation was Christ's body and blood are present in with and under so it's even kind of deepens transubstantiation a little bit so he's also present and he's also in um, a lot of the reformers like Calvin believe in what's called receptionism um, 
you can receive the actual blood and body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacrament. Um, kind of creates a little bit of magic in it. Um, and then you've got kind of the, I can't figure out what I want to call it group. So we'll call it memorialism, which is the, he said, do this in memory of me. So that's exactly what we do. We believe it is a command. Um, I think the Baptists uh, are, followed this belief. Uh, Zwingli did, um, the Swiss reformer. It's really just, he said to do this in memory of me, and that is what we do. We don't think there's any special magic that is involved in um, the Eucharist itself. We do it because he commanded us to do it. Uh, we do it because he commanded us to do it when we break bread. So every time we break bread and drink wine, we are to remember that he is our provider, that he is our uh, redeemer, that he is our God, that he gave himself for us. So just really important. You know, one of the, I read a book years ago and I've brought this up so many times lately and it's, it's very important. The book is the Didache. It's this, the teaching, it's a Greek book. Um, and it talks about communion as an event in the first church. So this book is a non-canonical book that talks about how the church was living, how it was working, breathing, and people were existing with one another. And what they talk about is how communion was being done in homes. People were breaking bread and drinking wine together because they were commanded to do so. They're, they didn't make it a, a, a event that was special because of the elements. It was special because of what Christ did on the cross. It was special because Christ was broken and bled for them. It wasn't special because of the elements. It was special because of Jesus. And of course, we have reference in this Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. So a couple other things I'll just touch upon real quick. Uh, magisterium really is this thought that the church exists as the authority over the people. Um, and I do not think there's a happy balance between the word of God and magisterium. Um, if you're a priest bishop, pope, whatever, um, you exhibit an authority over people that exists above the word of God. So if the word of God says something, if your priest tells you something else, the priest is always right. I think this is very, very poor uh, revelation. People should always question it. If it's not, you would do that to any of the other cults, but not to your own, then you are inconsistent. So you will look at other cults and say, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, you do the same thing. So what you are teaching is incorrect. So we need to be very careful there. I think magisterium is a, is a horrible way to live your life as a believer. Um, you know, we put educated people up on the pulpit so that we learn from people who do nothing but study the word of God and deliver it to us but we don't put them in a position where they have authority over the word of God. That is just incorrect, especially when, uh, because of the vicar, that magisterium has changed its mind literally thousands of times over the years when we know that we have a consistent God who does not change his mind. Um, sacraments in the church, there are seven major Catholic sacraments. And, it, you know, again, the Council of Trent, they decided that these sacraments were tied intrinsically to your salvation. So find that in the Bible, and I will kowtow uh, for now. I just will not do it. Um, I, one of the things as of the contemporary church, and I don't know how long it's been going on, maybe many, many years, but when you hear about the massive cover-up of homosexuality and pedophilia inside the church, I just think it's a disgusting practice. Um, tie that millstone around their necks and chuck them in the sea. Uh, we have the Catholic Church right up to the top being absolutely 100% guilty of covering up these major, major abuses of kids by the thousands, probably the millions across the world. And I think it's absolutely disgusting and that none of those people should have been moved. They all should have been uh, imprisoned or um, killed for their transgressions and uh, allowed to meet their maker for judgment. 
absolutely not the way that we run a Christian church. And I realize it's not just the Catholic church that has done this, but the Catholic church as the major supposed Christian organization on the planet should not have that as a part of who they are. So that should have been set aside years ago. And unfortunately it is a pandemic. It's a huge problem. Lack of good exegetical teaching. Uh, You know, I sat in church for years and years and there's so much time spent on mass and doing the mass uh, instead of good, solid biblical teaching. It just doesn't happen. Whatever happened to going in and learning about Jesus Christ, learning about God, learning about the Holy Spirit, how does it apply to my life? So to just get a few minutes of that uh, during an hour, an hour and a half service, it is not enough. These people are coming to you for a short period of time on a Sunday I mean, they need to be getting the best of Jesus Christ because you are giving your best to teach them, Um, not just going up there and doing a ritual. And that is what's happened with a lot of priests. They go up and they go through this ritualistic thing and and people leave. And I I think as an organization, they could do a lot better at that. Uh, Lack of good faith community. And this is a problem in many, many churches, not just the Roman Catholic, but I found this grown up. Again, this is my story. So I don't have a memory of a faith community. Unfortunately, I have a memory of a hypocritical community where people uh, walked in sin and then dipped their fingers in the holy water and blessed themselves on Sunday morning and somehow it was gone. And church history lends, I think, to... Uh, the church not being well also. You know, I did a lot of reading about pre-reformers, guys like Jan Hus, who was a priest, who was a Czech priest, who just wanted the people to be able to read the Bible in their own language, was against the almsgiving, didn't want to support a church, give them millions and millions of dollars. He had a 3,000-member church who were fervent believers. The Catholic Church invites him to go there, get in his liturgical robes, and they set him on fire in the church. William Tyndale, who wants to write the Bible in English. We can't have people reading the Bible in English because they'll learn all the horrible things the church is doing in the 1500s. So they're going to burn him at the stake, and instead they just decide to hang him. Um, Here's a misnomer. The Roman Catholic Church did not carry Christianity. We do see an amazing reformation. You know, we see Luther's 95 Thesis, and we see it arise out of believers, out of the church, which dominated the former estate of the Roman Empire for sure. But the church surely existed without the Roman Catholic Church as the carrier of the torch. Christ maintained his church. Christ is the one who maintained the church. There were other Christian churches around the world, not just the Roman Catholic Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church as well. There were believers who existed in communities where the only church who even used the word Jesus Christ was the Catholic Church. And it was this theocratical domination that allowed them to not have their own types of churches. This reformation was just that. It was to go back to what the church was supposed to be. It didn't mean that these people did not exist and that the church didn't exist within the realm of the Roman Catholic Church or that other Uh, Christians did not exist in places like Africa and Asia and the Far East. It doesn't mean they didn't exist. It's a misnomer, Catholics. Don't think for a minute that the Reformers were somebody who turned their backs on the Catholic Church to go do their own thing. It is people who believe that we should go back to the way the church is supposed to be and not this ritualistic thing that has grown up out of the depths of human greed and theocratical control. One of my biggest problems lies in this. The Bible is consistent about false teachers. And when you have priests who believe in this magisterium, priests who believe in teaching things or making things liturgical that are clearly not, they're not biblical, is they become what the, the Bible would call false teachers. Um... John and 2 John is pretty clear, 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked out or may win in full reward everyone who goes on ahead. Um, 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is why I am not a part of the church. I don't believe that their teachings are consistent with the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the apostles, like John here, is very clear. Things have been added. Things have been taken away. Things have been covered up. Things are not consistent. Therefore, we become a part of that when we participate in it. And um, I know this is a sensitive subject. I have tons of family and friends who are practicing Roman Catholics. Um, and you know, I hope this reaches them. I think, uh, I don't consider myself a reformer. I think it's a funny word. I just consider myself a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian. Yeah, I, I guess reformed is the word that people use today to uh, connotate uh, who we are, but I, have, uh, I try very hard to dig into the text and to make sure that I am studying and learning things from the original language as much as possible to include how Christ did church, how the apostles did church, how we should do church with each other, and how we should find that hope that we only have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, through that. And now, uh, going back to the start of this where, you know, somebody reached to me, an old friend reached to me, is how does this become a part of our reaching people in our, our circle and our family who are Roman Catholics, who are dug in on the dogma of the church? I would say... Uh, at some point, it's take a stand. You got to meet them, um, and you got to love them, and you got to ask these questions. And the things that I just brought up are just a few, but it also means that we need to break ourselves away, find a good Bible teaching church, and dig in on the text, and become someone who's able to defend our faith and what is right and what is good in a way that's loving, right? Because this is not about uh, bashing them socially. Uh, it's about just showing them like, look, you're, you're walking away from what Christ would have for you and you are studying what man would have for you. We need to be very careful about that. There's a lot of false religions out there. I believe there are a lot of great Christians who exist within the walls of Catholic churches who just unfortunately sit underneath poor leadership and are being lied to. And uh, I say, let's reach them those that are there that are not saved and those that are, are saved and let's uh, get them on the right track. So uh, blessing to all of you. I hope this makes it clear in a loving way. Um, and uh, for that person who reached out, I hope this helps you to understand my specific stance on it. And if you are a Roman Catholic, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can comment on this or through the Nation of the Cross Ministries website, you can comment or message me for further conversation. Otherwise, uh, believers, uh, many blessings to you and stay on the grind.